So that's what we've been doing. We've been talking about these kind of ordinary aspects. And I want to start off with this. You know, my father was the first person, uh, his family was the first family, and he was the first kid in his town to have a TV. Uh, and he said it was unbelievable. The entire uh, neighborhood would cram into his living room and just aghast stare, transfixed at this piece of technology, which is kind of a weird thing to have the whole town come into your neighborhood. But it, you know, imagine it was, they were just, they just wanted to see it, see what it was like to have these images projected. And um, today we are, we're in a very different situation. The average home in America has 7.3 screens. Uh, in two generations, screens have colonized our lives. And screens are everywhere. They're in our waiting rooms, they're in our schools, they're in our cars, they're in our restaurants. You know, I was, I was pumping gas the other day, and you know, there was a screen right there so that in those two minutes while I was pumping gas, I would not be bereft of a screen, God forbid, <laughs> that that would happen. <clears throat> so today, a little different kind of sermon. If you're visiting, we don't usually talk about technology, but we, it's a huge part of our life. We're going to talk about screens. We're going to ask the question, what does God think of the screens that fill our lives? And like my talk on leisure, I am going to try it again. I'm going to offer uh, 11 biblical maxims on screens. I know. Some of you are like, okay, I'm going to leave now, okay? That means you've got to listen fast, all right? This is an 11-point sermon, all right? Uh, and a maxim, if you weren't here, that just means like a pithy statement about screens. And my first maxim, because we don't have much time, let's jump right in, is consider your diet. Consider your diet. We use screens for so many things. We use screens to communicate with others. We use screens to connect with others via social media. We use screens to create music and to write novels. And imagine using a screen to present a sermon. We use screens to worship. We use screens in order to compete with others through gaming. We use screens for commerce, to conduct business. We use screens sometimes to cope. Like a drug, we can turn to screens to self-medicate and feed shopping and feed food, gambling, sexual addictions, you name it. So if we think of screens as akin to food we consume, we could say that some screens are healthy, some are junk food, and some are rotten and can kill you. During the pandemic, if you remember, it wasn't that long ago when we had this lockdown, we had screens 24-7, and we started experiencing something called screen fatigue, which if we use the food analogy, it means that we had had enough. We were feeling bloated, like I cannot take any more screen. Thankfully, that's over. Thankfully, we're past that stage, but we have emerged with more screens than ever. We have emerged in a more screen-based world than ever, and so we are living right now in a world unlike any other for generations that have gone before us, a world in which we are saturated and engage in screens all the time. So, you know, God doesn't want his people to make a mess of their lives. And there's books in the Bible that try to keep us from making a mess of our lives. And one of, them's, one of them is the book of Proverbs. It's a book in the Hebrew Bible that talks about this character called the fool. And the fool is someone who doesn't get it. They don't understand life. They don't understand how life works. They don't, they don't know the author of life. 
They don't even understand themselves. And because of that, they have these ignorances. And by the way, these ignorances compound each other. They're connected according to Proverbs. And if there was one proverb that I actually would say is kind of like this, the Bible verse for this sermon, because, you know, when Josh said, why don't you do screens? I'm like, sure, that sounds fun. And then I get there, I'm like, wait, where's first and second screens? I don't see it in my Bible. But if there's one Bible verse I would say that really gets to where we're going today, it's this one here, Proverbs 14.8. The wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways, but the folly of fools is deception. A wise person considers their ways, considers their practices, their actions, the things that they're doing in their life, the things that derail them, the things that help them flourish, the things that disconnect them from God and others, and the things that help them connect meaningfully and richly to God and others. And what is the fool? The fool is the person whose shameful mistake, that's that word folly, is to not pay attention to their life and the things that they do. And their deception is that they don't realize the impact the actions are having on them. So if we're going to flourish in today's world, we need to, to quote Proverbs 14:8, give thought to our ways, particularly with screens. Maxim number two, images matter. Screens traffic in images. Images of athletes performing, images of wars happening, images of consumer objects and celebrities and cute kitties, and images of people doing incredible things and at travel destinations we can never afford to go to, filled with images. You know, the Bible may not mention Facebook or Instagram or Pinterest, but the Bible has a lot to say about images. Images are very important in the Bible. In fact, the second commandment is all about images. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. See, implicit in this warning is the assumption that images are incredibly powerful. They shape our hearts. They can draw our hearts to trust in something other than God. They can easily begin to serve as God substitutes what the Bible calls an idol. And if we look at the history of Christianity, one of the things that is amazing and very instructive is throughout the history of the church, until the modern period really, Christians took images incredibly serious. There was a period in the 8th and 9th century in the Byzantine church where they removed images from the church out of fear that they would derail people from faith. There was a period in the 13th century when Christians were afraid to even look at the bread and the cup. There was a period in the 16th century called the Protestant Reformation where Christians removed images from the church because they thought they might deform people's conception of God. Now, whether or not they were right or wrong in doing what they did, here's what I want us to notice. Our Christian forebearers took images incredibly serious. If our Christian forebears respected images for their strength, today we have come to see images pretty much as harmless. Images are everywhere. We're inundated with images. Images are seen as market vehicles and copies of copies. They're proliferated everywhere. And as a result of the number of screens, we have demonetized images. 
We no longer give them serious consideration. We no longer see their formative power as former generations. This kind of laissez-faire approach to images is very different from Job, who set up a strict standard as to what images he would entertain. Job 31.1, Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. He was very circumspect about the kind of images he would let cross his mind because he understood the power of images. Have we made a covenant with our eyes? In an age where screens are ubiquitous, covenants with our eyes are scarce. Number three, God has screens. Because God knows the power of images and their power to distort our vision, and because the most important thing that we can have a vision of is a maximally perfect being, or God, God creates his own screens. Two important screens of God are creation and the pinnacle of creation, human beings who are made in the image of God. Two verses that show us that, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. The heavens declare the glory of God. The natural world, you can develop a capacity to see God's power and glory and beauty as the natural world reflects that. This is a screen of God. But then also we learn that in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. You know, screens, our screens, can actually portray God's screens. So, I mean, me and my wife, we love these nature shows. We're like addicted to documentaries about Amazonian, you know, mating rituals of these birds and the flora and fauna of Papua New Guinea. And have you ever seen BBC's Planet Earth? That's amazing. You can watch that and you just be like, wow, God, you're amazing. It's incredible. You know, and apps like YouTube and Instagram and et cetera, they're always displaying exceptional human beings. But here's the deal, and this is very subtle. When we use our screens as a replacement for God's screens, God becomes blurry. We are first and foremost called to engage the real world and the real people that are in our lives. That's how we see God. Maxim number four, screens are not additive. Screens are not additive. It's commonly said that technological advances are neither inherently good or bad. What matters is how you use them. I've said that myself at times. But the problem is that this suggests technology is merely neutral. It's actually much more accurate to say that technology is slanted. Technology makes some things possible, but it also makes some things that were possible before impossible. If you think about the automobile, You know, the great thing about cars is they make it so that we can just jump in this thing and we can travel all kinds of miles. No problem, just great distances. But with automobiles, there are also some things that changed. The scale of streets changed. Uh, the, the, The houses suddenly replaced porches with garages. You know, because of automobiles, um, we began to uh, replace neighborhood churches and stores with megachurches and malls. There is no such thing as just simply adding the automobile to 
the world, the automobile changes because technological advances are ecological and they shift the entire world around them. Screens are no different. For instance, we've made the Bible ubiquitously available thanks to screens. You've got the Bible anytime, as long as you've got cellular service. And yet, at the same time, because of screens, we have found it difficult to get away from people, to find silence for focus, for contemplation. With all new technology, some things become possible and some things become impossible. Neil Postman once said, technology is not additive. And that, by that, he meant you don't just introduce a piece of technology into the same world. When you introduce it, it doesn't just, you don't just add it, you actually change the world. Postman went on to say this, embedded in every tool is an ideological bias, a predisposition to construct the world as one thing rather than another, to value one thing over another, to amplify one sense or skill or attitude more loudly than another. I want to suggest that embedded in our screens is a certain predisposition to mere sight. What do I mean by that? Screens are predisposed to cause us to see with our eyes such as, as if they're just mere optical instruments to notice the outward and visible and more ephemeral aspects of people and things. By contrast, the Bible talks about spiritual vision. And spiritual vision is where we see through our eyes with lenses that are formed through true convictions to notice things about God and people and the world, to discern things that are not apparent or obvious, but incredibly valuable and important. See, screens can show us things, but screens can also blind us to ways of seeing. If you have any doubt about this, think about how feminine ideals have been driven by screens in the last three, four decades. You know, the book of Proverbs, coming back to Proverbs, is incredibly clear. It teaches young men to be able to see females as people, to see their character, to look past that which is so readily obvious, to see the hidden person and the character. Now, one group that we all like to kind of laugh at is the Amish. Those are the people that ride the little buggies and they've kind of just checked out, right, of technology. But here's the thing with the Amish. The Amish actually recognize something that we miss. They recognize that technology has predispositions, that it contains implicit bias. Now, I'm not suggesting that we sweep away and condemn indiscriminately all technology, but I also want to suggest that it's naive just to consume it indiscriminately and just, I'm just going to use it for Jesus. It might just be that not everything can be just used for Jesus. Maxim number five, Google makes us stupid. Some of you have already been doing a lot of Googling and you're already not paying attention, so I know that this is a true maxim. I'm kidding. <laughs> All right. John Colkin says, he's a Jesuit sociologist, we shape our tools, and therefore our tools shape us. We create screens, and in turn, our screens then shape us in the way we see the world and what we see in it. 
In Nicholas Carr's Atlantic article, Is Google Making Us Stupid? Carr says, media are not just passive channels of information. They supply the stuff of thought, but they also shape the process of thought. And what the internet seems to be doing is chipping away at my capacity for concentration and contemplation. My mind now expects to take in information the way the net distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Then he adds this, and I've got this quote at the top here. Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words, but now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. You know, when we look at political debates before, like 100, 150 years ago, people would sit and listen to a politician talk for hours about complex policy, and they would digest it. And the sad thing is, is that I, I actually, this is actually a true fact, we have less attention spans today than goldfish. This is a true fact. It's scary. See, screens shape our minds. And the reason why this is so important is because the Bible calls us to use our minds, to love God with our minds. Look at Psalm 1. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Meditates day and night. We can't make 15 seconds, like day and night. Now, that's, not, that's something, that's a muscle we can build, right? We can build the capacity to have concentration and meditation. It's not something you just have. You have to actually build that. But screens, if we're living on screens, they have the capacity to take that from us. And, and, this, and this is not just the Psalms, meditating on a, on a Psalm. I mean, Scripture takes concentration. If you want to be a Christian and really engage the Bible, you're going to need to put on your concentration hat. You know, the Apostle Paul has these very nuanced arguments. You want to follow the argument through the book of Romans, what Paul's doing? It's going to take concentration. It's going to take practice. It's going to take meditation. It's going to take getting all distractions away and really investing yourself. And sadly, as screens, as we engage them more and more and more and allow them to distract us, and it, it, we actually lose the kind of capacity in order to engage Scripture such that we are transformed. It's interesting that the most Christian period in our country's history was also the most literate Puritan New England, and the most secular period in our country's history is the period when we have the most screens. I'm not sure what to make out of that, but that's worth noticing. So the bottom line is you can't meme your way to Christ-likeness, okay? You really can't do it. In fact, the more memeing you're doing, the more, maybe the more danger there is with being able to really engage all of Scripture. There is a place for memes. Don't worry, I'm not freaking out. But there, but there is something to be said for the power of screens to transform our capacity to think. Okay, maxim number six. This one's scary. We are for sale. We are for sale. In his book, We Are Data, Algorithms and the Making of Our Digital Selves, John Cheney Lippold reveals that behind many screens are automated classification algorithms that transform individuals into categories. In other words, our media preferences, our purchases, the people we talk to, our interlocutors, all this results in us being profiled through big data 
and we become sorted into measurable types such as white hippie or conservative Latina or whatever you have there. And the point of these types is so that we can then be targeted for advertisements accordingly. In other words, our attention is for sale. And screens will do whatever they can, whatever it takes to keep us coming back. They don't care what they're serving us as long as they can get our attention. If it's fake news, if it's pornography, if it's mind-numbing trivia because you're into that, it doesn't care, it will serve it up. These algorithms aim to develop strong bonds between users and screens such that users are unable to disengage. That is creepy, and that's real. Paul says, I will not be enslaved by anything. So it's not only we that are for sale, but our social fabric is also for sale. You know, nothing generates attention quite as much as anger and fear. And our screens are filled with anger and fear. The result is we live in an era of outrage and cyber mobs, an era of fear and conspiracy theories. You know, as a pastor, let me just be really clear about this. If you are a follower of Jesus, trafficking in anger and fear has no place in your life. Jesus came to set us free from anger and fear and the invasive market forces that seek to dominate our lives. Sadly, and this is extremely sobering, it's not just you and me and our social fabric that is for sale, but our children are also for sale. Parents, pay attention to your children and their relationship to screens. Maxim number seven, we become the stories we consume. Long ago, before there were screens, just go way back with me, okay? Before there were screens, before there was TVs and movies, like how did stories get distributed? They got distributed by bards, people that were trained to tell these stories, by theater troops, right? Then came the printing press, and we could, if you could read, you could have access to stories. And then came movie screens and TVs, and suddenly you could have large audience that would assemble to watch a story. But with streaming, we have entered into a whole new world. And now we are inundated by stories. Stories are ubiquitous. They're everywhere, and they're all the time. Now with images, the Bible, as as well as with images, the Bible also takes stories incredibly serious. You know, the Bible is a number of stories compiled, right? And itself is an overarching story from Genesis to Revelation. And, And as we come to understand the story of the Bible, you know, the narrative of the Bible, creation, the fall, redemption, restoration, that we are created by a good God, that we are sinners in need of God's mercy, that because of Jesus' 
death, burial, and resurrection, we can be brought close to God. We can know God. We can know what it's to be forgiven and loved by God and that we have a hope one day that we will actually be resurrected. And when that drops, we find a whole new identity. We are creatures loved by God, redeemed by God with a future and we can be known completely by the only one that can know us completely. On top of that, when we enter into the Bible story, our suffering and our joy is no longer stuck within a birth-to-death narrative, but it takes on the cosmic weight of Christ's life because we realize that our life and Christ's life have then converged, that our life is, that Christ's life is superimposed on our life such that our lives take on the cosmic significance of Christ's life. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ. He's not talking metaphysically. Jesus wasn't inside Paul. He's like, I'm no longer me. And suddenly Jesus has possessed me. He's saying that my narrative has become superimposed with Christ's narrative such that my narrative has this incredible weight, such that as I enter more deeply into what it means that Christ and I have become united, my life explodes with joy, my suffering has meaning, and I know who I am and where I'm going. Stories transform, and the ultimate story, the Bible, transforms ultimately. But with online streaming, we now have an unprecedented number of stories at our fingertips, both you know, these kind of ultra epics and micro-narratives, whether it's Netflix or NPR or Fox News or CNN or Amazon Prime or YouTube or you name it. I mean, it's, 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 it's everywhere. Stories are everywhere. And here's the deal. These stories are also competing for our identity. We become the stories we consume. So we need to choose our stories wisely. Better yet, rather than just jumping on Netflix and see what's on, which is usually a, you know, it's usually a disaster, right? Let's just face it. Like, you know, you start clicking, no, not that, no, no, no. And then you end up watching something you regret. Right, babe? Uh, <laughs> we had that happen this week. I'm like, wow, I'm preaching on screens this week too. But you know, it's better actually, if you can, to go ahead and keep a running list of great movies, shows, podcasts, things that are going to build you up. If you're looking for a criteria, I can think of none better than Philippians 4, 8, and 9. I like the message version. Summing it all up, friends, you'll do best to fill your minds and meditate on things that are true and noble and reputable and authentic and compelling and gracious. Fill your minds with the best, not the worst with the beautiful, not the ugly, with things that lead you to praise, not to curse. Number eight, bond with people in real life. You know, a number of films in the last decade have explored this idea that we can grow attached to our mobile devices. There's the film Her, there's the film Jexy. You know, they explore this idea that people bond with their devices. And there's good reason that they're exploring this. You know, screens increasingly recognize us. They recognize our touch, our voice, our face, our choices, our likes, our dislikes. And here's the scary thing. It's not just science fiction. Researchers tell us that we can grow attachments to our devices, where we constantly have to have a sense of where it's at. 
where we feel a little distraught if we don't have it. If you doubt me, just try going to the bathroom without your iPhone, right? In Sherry Turkle's Alone Together, Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other, Turkle, an MIT professor, explores the way we increasingly confuse genuine friendships with the number of Twitter followers or our Facebook friends or our Instagram followers. Turkle shows how new social technologies give the illusion of companionship without the demands of true friendship. So in today's screen-saturated world, we increasingly bond with people that we will never meet. People that are like celebrities, people that we actually don't know, and they don't actually know us. See, real relationships involve face-to-face conversations. Real relationships involve adjudicating personal space, right? When you're actually adjudicating the distances and the feel of that person's presence, and there's ways you come to know. It involves navigating periods of silence, sometimes awkward silence, nonverbal communication, a host of things that screens can never deliver. But it even gets more interesting. You see, Turkle here is talking about trying to understand why, as our screens have increased, so has our loneliness as a culture. She's not alone. A number of researchers have noted that rampant loneliness has emerged precisely with the growth of our screens. One researcher states, it is a kind of grand irony that loneliness has spiked just as our media has become social, our technology personal, and our machines now recognize faces. We become more connected than ever and relationally bankrupt at the exact same time. French philosopher Merleau Pontet His work on the phenomenology of perception has shown that we cannot substitute mental processes for embodied ways of knowing. Sociologist Pierre Bordeaux has convincingly argued that individuals thrive within a habitus, a full range of social connectivity that employs gut feelings, intuitions, manners, tastes, practices that we do together in community. That's how we thrive as human beings. But long before we had French intellectuals telling us that showing up actually matters? We had the Bible. Imagine that. We had verses like Hebrews 10.25 that says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. The screens can play a remedial role if we can't physically be there. And there's no judgment. If you can't come to church for physical reasons or there's a lockdown, you don't want to get it sick, of course. Screens play a role. We have, this is being broadcast today, you know. Screens, screens can play a limited role. I met my wife on Match. But here's the deal. If I kept it on Match, it would have got weird after a while. <laughs> after a while, she'd be like, is this guy married? Like, what the heck's going on here? You know? And if I thought that I was in love with her and we were going to spend our lives together and I'd never met her in person, you'd be like, hey, Cavolo, reality check. But for some reason, we've now come to believe it's okay to think we're part of a local church if we're just online all the time. Hebrews 10.25, the word there, if you want to know the Greek, meet together means assemble physically, okay? There was no online, okay? That's what it means. And so no judgment. 
If something's happening so you can't physically be here, but if you can, you need to be with the people of God because there's ways you're going to encounter Jesus that don't happen online. All right. Um, let's see where we're at. Maxim number nine. Maxim number nine. Uh, be where you are. Be where you are. Oh, hold on just a second here. What is this? Oh, hold on, hold on. Yeah, Josh? Yeah, you can borrow my surfboard. Oh, I don't care, the green one, the blue one. Oh, everybody says hi, Josh. All right. <clears throat> that wasn't Josh, I'm kidding. Um, remember, God is sovereign, and where you are is where God puts you. Maxim number 10. And this is kind of the whole sermon, right? We need to put screens in their place. We've seen that screens are both powerful and weak. They enable us to communicate globally, create, and engage in new forms of commerce. They also tap into our imagination through powerful images and stories. But when we use screens as a surrogate for real relationships or to pacify us when we are restless and dealing with life struggles, they leave us lonely and addicted. Because of the power and weakness of screens, Curating screens is an act of loving God and neighbor. It's an act of loving God because we need more than the sight that screens can give us. And it's an act of loving neighbor because screens shape us into the people then engage our neighbors. In other words, coming back to Proverbs 14.8, we need to give thought to our ways with screens. Andy Crouch writes, if there is one thing that I've discovered about technology, it's that it doesn't stay in its proper place on its own. Screens do have a proper place. I, I've used a screen. You know, screens do have a proper place. But we need to put screens in that place. They don't go there on their own, unfortunately. You know, in the Bible, when God creates, he sets boundaries. It's all an act of boundary setting. He sets these boundaries over these powerful forces to establish order, and the Bible tells us that when he did it, God said, thus far you shall go and no further. We need to say the same thing to the 24-7 demand of our screens. There's books that can help us, but at the end of the day, we all need to set a covenant with our eyes, as Job says. Here's some books that can help us. These are books that I would recommend. One is called The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction by Justin Early. Early is an attorney. His whole life collapsed and melted down because he didn't pay attention to the inundation of screens and he had to rebuild his life in a way that he could actually gain traction again. He started paying attention and he gained traction. There's here some, some things that come out of there from Early's book. This is on the smartphone. He said, these are rules that he came up with. No, no phone before scripture when I wake up. I don't pick up my phone, I pick up scripture first. No phone for at least one hour a day. One hour a day, I put my phone away and I'm just not gonna do phone. No phone in bed. Early says beds are for rest, for reading, and if you're married, for sex, but they're not for phones. Uh, the Crouches, um, Andy and Amy Crouch, have a couple of books. One is great, if you have kids, Tech Wise Family, 
amazing book on the, how to deal with technology in the family, how to create a culture where technology is treated well within a family. And then there's also my Tech Wise Life, and they have all kinds of great, uh, wonderful advice, things like um, create screen-free zones in numerous ways, physically remove screens from the dinner table, the living room, the family room, the bedroom. Or I like this one, wake up before your devices and put your devices to sleep long before you go to bed. Or I like this one, one hour a day, one day a week, and one week a year, turn off your devices and worship, feast, play, and rest. A whole week without your device. Imagine that. I was like, wow, that's cool. Here's a good one. Spouses should have one another's passwords. Parents should have total access to their children's devices. And Christian friends need to make their web browsing available to other Christian friends. So these are just some suggestions. You can go to these books. You can talk. We can, we can you know, develop a plan. But every single one of us in an age of screens needs to have a plan to put screens in their place. I'm going to end with this. The final maxim, prepare for the ultimate viewing. Why are we drawn to screens? We are drawn to screens. What is it that's so inviting about the soft glow of their light that brings us to them time and time again? Here's a thought. Could it be that we're made to come alive as a result of our gaze? Could it be that screens know something true about us, that we are made to come alive as a result of our gaze? John started before this sermon by reading Psalm 27. One thing have I desired of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. You know, that psalm starts with Psalm 27.1. says, the Lord is the light of my life. There is a light there that draws me. Jesus said, blessed are the righteous, for they shall see God. An incredible blessing is to be able to see God, to have that happen. So why do we curate screens? We don't curate screens because we're Luddites and tech-phobes and because we're Grinches and because you know, we're just killjoys and you know, take that video game from that boy. That's not what we're doing here. That's not what it's about. It's because we don't want to miss the ultimate feast for the eyes. We don't want to spoil our appetite, our visual appetite, such that we won't be able to be a part of the ultimate viewing which will transform us forever. A viewing that will heal us, a viewing that will change us, a viewing, a viewing that will remove our loneliness so that we can see others and be seen and so that we can be known. The ubiquity of screens in our increasingly secular age suggests a desperation and I think that below this, it's revealing that we don't just need the light of screens, we need the light of life. We need the light of the world. We need to participate in that ultimate gaze which will forever leave us changed and transformed. Let's pray.
Lord, we're grateful. We're grateful that we live in an age where there's so many wonderful technological advances. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for them. We want to praise you for them. We want to thank you that we can do so many things as a result of our tools, but Lord, we also don't want to be naive. And we want to recognize that we want to manage our tools and not have them manage us. We pray, Father, that we will set a covenant over our eyes, a covenant between ourselves and you about the kind of things, the images, the stories, the things that we are going to allow ourselves to engage in. You have warned us, Lord, that the images and the stories in our lives shape us profoundly. May we take this serious, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we will use screens in our lives in a way that will build us up and build others up, but we will never put our ultimate hope in them because we know that the ultimate and complete healing gaze will take place that day that we will be able to see you and gaze upon your beauty. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.